Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Here's the thing. Let me just tell you the George Washington part, and then I'll tell you the the American Corporation part. Back in the day, actually back in 1750-something, 1751, October, November of 1751, George Washington and his older brother Lawrence traveled to Barbados. George got sick, started with a headache, then a fever. He felt malaise. Uh, when his morning routine, getting out of bed, was uh, curtailed with a severe backache, anything like he'd experienced before. He had a chill running through his body, which was unusual given that it was very warm in Barbados. And then the rash started. And eventually the rash covered his whole entire body. He was 19 years old. He was on an adventure and he had smallpox, George Washington. Now you see the paintings of him, you don't see the pock marks but he was severely pox-marked, as were many of, of the people of that era. And those pock marks, while the painters didn't put them in, those marks were actually a sign of employability. Because once you've had smallpox, you can't get it again. You have lifelong immunity. George Washington, on November 16, 1751, 19-year-old George Washington writes in his diary, I was strongly attacked by the smallpox. And he was confined 25 days with the smallpox, confined to his house. And the initial symptoms got worse and worse until he finally broke his fever and came back out of it. But 25 days he was sick. And uh, the techniques that they used to help him were to bleed the patient when the fever was high, purge and bleed during the second fever, and employ methods to decrease inflammation, including medicine, fluids, and a special diet. This book by Elizabeth Fenn, Pox Americana, the Great Smallpox Epidemic of 1775 to 82, she talks about how George Washington, the problem that he had was that smallpox had been widespread in England for years and years, and it was not in the American colonies. It was pretty much just in the port towns where it would come in with the British soldiers. And, uh, you know, if, if a ship came in with the pox on it, they would literally burn the ship in the harbor. And so uh, the problem that George Washington had was as all these British soldiers were coming over, not only were they bringing smallpox with them, but they were actually sending pox-infected people into the towns and into the communities to infect the American rebels. And at the time they knew that if you took one of the little blisters, one of these little bubbles that was full of pox, 
If you took the stuff out of that and injected it into a person or scratched them deeply and stuck it under their skin, called inoculation, if you did that, they would get a mild case of smallpox, but they would recover because this contained all the antibodies as well. And they would recover, not always, but 90 plus percent of the time they'd recover. And they would be immune to smallpox for the rest of their lives. So George Washington did this with the entire American army. In 1777, he ordered a mandatory inoculation of all recruits. And the inoculation had to be conducted with great secrecy because what it meant was all of his troops are going to be sick for three weeks while they had a mild case of smallpox. So they did this, they accomplished it, and that was one of the things that helped George Washington win the war. Well, I think that some American employers are doing the same thing. They're looking at such a large pool of people who want to work that they're just saying, you know, we'll just let this burn through our workforce. This is for unskilled labor. We'll just let this burn through our workforce, and eventually we're going to have a bunch of people who are immune. And in the meantime, if we lose 10, 20, 30% of our workers, we can easily hire those people out in the marketplace of people who can prove that they already had COVID-19. So it's like, you know, Washington's inoculation, you know, smallpox inoculation, which didn't kill people, is being done, it appears, by some of these large employers in a way that, frankly, will kill people. On the other hand, it might be a very good business move, right? One of the reasons that George Washington, he was in the British Army for a long time before he left the British Army in the late 1760s, you know, and became basically an American rebel. And he rose up through the ranks all the way up to colonel in the British Army, in part because he had pox marks. He could prove that he was immune. So, you know, there was a time back in the 1770s when there was an epidemic of smallpox going on in North America and it had been sweeping Europe for hundreds of years. There was a time when, you know, that immunity was actually used and useful in a way. So I think that, you know, we're going to, within a matter of a few months, frankly, you know, Trump is talking about getting the economy back on board. Within a few months, we're going to have a substantial pool of people who had COVID, and once we've got a serum test, can prove that they had it, who are now immune, who can go back into the workforce going to get real interesting. You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. And frankly, it's one of the things that makes me a little less panicky about our supply chain, particularly our food supply chain, because there will be people available for work shortly. On the line with us is our old buddy Alex Lawson, who fills in for me from time to time and runs our affiliate in Washington, D.C., We Act Radio. He's also the executive director of Social Security Works, socialsecurityworks.org, a man of many, many talents and who wears many hats. His Twitter handle, A Law, as in Alex Lawson, A Law 202. And uh, Alex, welcome back to the program. Tom, thanks for having me. It is so nice having you. By the way, there's a slight delay here because I'm doing the show remotely from home. You know, if we step on each other, so be it. We'll just have to put up with it. So I've been seeing headlines mostly uh, the days before the bill was signed, and but some after, that there was a pause in the Social Security tax collection from employers 
I saw some stories say this is going to, you know, take a bite out of the Social Security trust fund and make Social Security less stable. And then I saw other articles saying, no, it's just a pause. It's, you know, they have to make it up next year, blah, blah, blah. What's the real story here? What's going on with this? How does this so-called stimulus affect the Social Security, you know, the institution of Social Security, the trust fund and future benefits? Tom, it's a little complicated, as always with Social Security, when they're attacking it. They like to do it in very convoluted, confusing manners. So let me just give you the facts, the payroll tax cut. What's happening here is that employers are able to defer their side of the payroll tax contribution for their workers for a period of time. And then, yes, they're supposed to uh, then pay it back. And yes, if they don't pay it back or can't pay it back, the general fund, i.e. our income tax, will make Social Security whole. But it is using the dedicated revenue of Social Security for something that it's not supposed to be used for. And there's no reason to do this except to put Social Security in the crosshairs in the future. So you heard it there about how the general general revenue would make the system whole. So the money is coming from general revenue. And they always say, like, don't worry, it's coming from general. Well, then just give it from general revenue in the first place. There's no reason to bring Social Security in unless your plan is in a few months to hold up your hands and say, oh, woe is me. We love Social Security, but now it's contributing to the deficit. And look at these spiraling deficits. We're just going to have to cut benefits. There's no reason that Social Security should be used to pay for anything other than our benefits that we've earned. So it's just a matter of uh, maintaining eternal vigilance on this. Uh, And we're going to fight in Stimulus 4 to get rid of it as a paying mechanism in Stimulus 3. We're not going to give up on this one. So you're expecting that come the end of the year when companies are supposed to either pay it back or say, I'm sorry, we're too broke, just let the Treasury pay for it. And it turns out that, I mean, we're talking, I think, about a a little less than a trillion dollars a year here, that the companies are going to say, we can't pay it, and so the federal government has to pay it. And at that point, you're going to have people like the Peterson Institute and these other groups that want to privatize Social Security, all the big Wall Street banksters, they're all going to be screaming, there's a $100 billion, or $500 or $900 billion or trillion dollar raid on the general fund by the Social Security Administration. We can't allow that. Social Security shouldn't be raiding the general fund. I mean, that's going to be the rhetoric, right, on Fox News? That's exactly it. I would uh, adjust the tone slightly, having done this a few times. I know you have as well. That's the outraged one. What they're going to do is more of the woe is me. Oh, we love Social Security, and we would love to not have to cut benefits. But unfortunately, hard times make hard decisions, and this money's coming out of the general. But it's the exact same thing. There's no reason for Social Security to be in the middle of this unless you want to leave that opening to attack it in a few months' time. Wow. So I, oh, the other question I had for you relative to this was, um, in a, an employer, when, when, when an employer says, 
or forces or whatever. I mean, what's the mechanism whereby the federal government picks up the employer's share? Does the employer have to be bankrupt? Do they have to be broke? Do they have to be in distress? Is there some threshold, a critical threshold? Do they have to sign a certificate? Is this something that's going to be widely used by small businesses across America who employ about two thirds of, of all Americans? Or is it going to be just something the big businesses use? What's that mechanism? So like many things in the stimulus, a ton of money was moved out the door with a lot of unanswered questions. So the actual mechanism is not extremely visible, but is likely to be bankruptcy, right? So a business has to pay back their deferred liability unless they're unable to. So it would be required to file some form of bankruptcy. But again, there's a lot of unknowns in this stimulus, but that's most likely what it would be. You said that this could be fixed in the next stimulus bill. Nancy Pelosi is working on that right now. I'm assuming that uh, although the Senate is on a three-week vacation, that Mitch McConnell's got people working on it. What would that look like? It's really easy. Uh, so Senator Ron Wyden actually had an alternative plan. He's, he's a great champion of Social Security. Also, he is the ranking member on the committee in the Senate. It's in his jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. And he put forward just a really straightforward thing. Instead of putting Social Security in the middle of it, let's just do tax credits from the general fund for the exact amount of the payroll tax deferral, right? So let's say you owed 10 Instead of not paying the 10 and then having to pay it back, there would just be a tax credit to you that said, here, here's 10. A much better way of doing it, you look around the world at what governments are doing to care for the people during this pandemic, covering 80% of their wages for the course of the emergency, and here it's a $1,200 check. I mean, that's a little unfair because the unemployment insurance is the big victory in Stimulus 3 the expanded UI. But that's the alternative. And we're going to say that we should just, Ron Wyden has this, Senator Wyden has this plan. That's what we should switch it to in stimulus four, even if we miss a few days, right? If it's in effect for a little bit, we think that mitigating it is still worthwhile. And the whole while we also raise the profile of this issue. President Obama was forced to use a payroll tax cut because the Republicans wouldn't let him use a tax credit in 2010. And we didn't see the cuts at the end of it, but we were ringing the alarm bell the whole time. And we think that's what blocked them from being able to do it is because we raised the profile of it. So that's a key part of what we're so doing people, right now. If people want to call 202-224-3121, the switchboard for Congress, and leave a message for their two senators and their member of the House of Representatives, what specifically should they say? Get rid of the payroll tax cut immediately from Stimulus 3 or just get rid of the payroll tax cut. Keep your hands off my Social Security. Just that simple, nothing about Ron Wyden or anything? I mean, if you wanted to get into what to replace it with, they can say get rid of the payroll tax cut and replace it with Ron Wyden's refundable tax credit. But the key thing is get rid of the payroll tax cut. Those are the words that we want everyone in Congress to hear over and over and over again. There you go. And the number for Congress, again, is 202-224-3121 or 225-3121. They'll both get you there. Alex Slauson, SocialSecurityWorks.org. Thank you, Alex. Thanks, Tom. And thanks for keeping uh, We Act Radio and everything else on the air. 
Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep, the application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs, just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Lorraine in San Diego. Hey, Lorraine, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today? Hi. Thank you very much for having Alex Lawson explain that. That was so informative. My question regards the congressional information pipeline. At the time that Senator Burr's uh, selling of his stocks was brought out, it was uh, he received a secret briefing. Now, is, he's the head of the Senate Intelligence Committee. So did an intelligence organization brief him, or did uh, some 
someone else notify him. And we if don't, he was briefed we don't know. by a Let me just answer that gover- part first, Lorraine. What, what we, what we, we don't know exactly who briefed Burr or what, you know, or when or how, but what we do know is that our spy agencies have basically leaked it that back in late December and early January, they were notifying both the White House and the intelligence committees in the House and Senate that this virus was going to get out of China, it was going to get here to the United States, and it was going to be bad. And, and of course, after, the, after he and Kelly Loughran, I think is her name, the senator who is the wife of the president of the New York Stock Exchange, those two senators just made a killing selling stock before the market crashed. And one of them, I believe it was Kelly, was buying stock in things like Zoom and, you know, companies that would make money on uh, Citrix was another one, the company that does go to my PC, making money on that. What puzzles me is that the House didn't make it public. Senator Shaheen was quoted as saying that she didn't understand why it was a secret briefing. Now, was that kept secret in order for senators and congressmen to be able to sell any stocks that they had to benefit from it financially? Why didn't our elected representatives recognize this as a a potential crisis? I keep seeing this coronavirus crisis situation reflective of the financial cost to the country. It has never really reflected how it's going to impact the American people. And I think that's a disgrace. It seems like if the House got the same information, they're complicit in this, in not taking action and not publicizing it more. Generally speaking, I agree, Lorraine, but spy agencies themselves are the ones who determine what level of classification they need when they have a meeting with members of Congress. So they define how classified something is. And it is a federal crime, a major go to prison for years and years federal crime for a member of Congress to reveal the contents of a classified briefing. And those spy agencies all work for Donald Trump. So if they're telling Trump this, and all the evidence is that they were, And then Trump is telling them, well, if you tell this to Congress, you need to make it the highest level of classification so this doesn't get out, then all of that starts to make sense. Does that make sense, Lorraine? Yes. Thank you very much. I appreciate that help. The Nordic Way to Economic Rescue is the uh, title of this piece of the New York Times by Peter Goodman. And it's a great analysis of what's going on around the world. In Denmark, political parties from across the ideological spectrum joined with labor unions and employers this month to unite behind a plan that has the government covering 75 to 90 percent of all workers' salaries, provided that the companies don't lay anybody off. The Danish government is also covering costs like rent. In the Netherlands, the government is stepping in to cover 90% of wages for companies that have lost more than 20% of their revenue. The British government is covering 80% of wages. We're not doing that here. We've slightly augmented the unemployment system, but we're not backstopping our employers. And the reason why is is breathtaking that it appeared in in an article in the New York Times. Quote, The primary reason that this sort of approach appears unthinkable in the United States 
is the same one that limits options to expanding health care and lowering the cost of university education. Wealthy Americans have proved adept at shielding themselves from taxation. Jacob Kierdegaard, a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute, says, You don't have a comprehensive welfare state in the United States because it implies a politically unacceptable level of redistribution. And that's true. And the conservatives are just absolutely unwilling to do that. In the United States, tax revenues amount to 24% of annual economic output. 24%. It was 28% before George W. Bush became president. It's down to 24%. You know, George W. Bush and Donald Trump both had huge tax cuts with most of the benefits flowing to really, really rich people. So we're at 24%. That's the elbow room. That's the space within the government, within which the government can work. In the Netherlands, it's 39%. In Britain, it's 34%. And in Denmark, it's 49%. Almost half of of the equivalent of economic activity, it's not half of the economic activity, but an amount of money equal to about half of economic activity in Denmark cycles through the government and is provided to people in the form of housing subsidies. There's basically no homelessness there. In the form of free health care, everything is free, every part of it. In the form of free education, you actually get paid to go to college in Denmark. And the result is the happiest people in the world, a strong infrastructure, a strong social safety net, and a country that actually works and that is dealing with this coronavirus. Meanwhile, the New York Times is also reporting on when the U.S. tried to build ventilators. And interestingly, this was the last year of the George W. Bush administration. In the last year of the Bush administration, the Bush administration decided that this was as a result of the H1N1 flu or the possibility of it coming. I forget whether it was SARS. I think it was SARS and one of the first Ebola outbreaks. But the SARS thing, that's a, you know, it hits your lungs. And so 13 years ago, in the last year of the George W. Bush administration, they started this thing. It was a project called, codenamed AURA, A-U-R-A. And what they estimated was that if there was going to be even a moderate pandemic, basically, of influenza, if we only got it moderately, that we would need nationwide an estimated 70,000 additional ventilators. So the question was, how do you build 70,000 ventilators? Now, how do you do it at the lowest possible cost? Ventilators at the time were selling for 15, 20, 25,000 bucks. So they sent out a request for proposals in 2008 to companies saying, if you can build a ventilator for $3,000, we'll buy 70,000 of them. And this small company out of Costa Mesa, California, called Newport Medical Instruments said, we will do it. This was a small specialty company that was already making and selling ventilators. They said, we will do it. And they awarded this contract just a few months after the N1H1 outbreak. Now we're into the Obama administration. And every three months, officials with that Newport company and the biomedical research agency of the U.S. government were getting together, and the company was submitting monthly reports. In 2011, the company shipped three working prototypes to the federal government and said, what do you think? Here's your $3,000 ventilator. We can mass produce them. That was 2011, nine years ago. Dr. Fredan, who then ran the CDC, said, I got all excited. It was a multi-year effort that it resulted in something that was going to be really useful. And they were supposed to go for market approval in September of 2013. And then everything changed. This company, this little company that had gotten the contract to do these, was bought out in 2012, in May of 2012, 
by Covidan, a large medical device manufacturer, for $100 million. Now, why did Covidan buy out this little company? Apparently, it's because Covidan themselves makes ventilators, and they didn't want this little company undercutting their price. They also bought five other medical device companies, perhaps for the same reason. The New York Times says it this way. They're a little more charitable. Government officials and executives at rival ventilator companies say they suspected that Covidan had acquired Newport to prevent it from building a cheaper product that would undermine Covidan's profits from its existing ventilator business. So by 2014, we were supposed to have 70,000 ventilators. We had none. And Covidan executives said, we want out of this contract. They broke the contract. This is in 2014. In 2015, Covidan got sold for $50 billion to an even bigger company, Medtronic, who said, we don't know anything about this. This is dead. And that's how America lost 70,000 ventilators to the friggin' so-called free market. Chuck in Heritage, Pennsylvania. Hey, Chuck, what's on your mind today? I'm retired Air Force, worked in the supply system, and we dealt with the chem warfare gear. Now, mm-hmm. everybody in the military or everybody in the branch I was in had three sets of gear, okay, which are heavy boots. You mean per- personal uh, to, protective equipment? Yeah, yeah. It wouldn't be something that a doctor could wear, but the stuff's out there, okay? There's huge warehouses full of this stuff out there. One of the last places I was at was Wright Patterson Air Force Base. They have huge warehouses of this stuff out there. I don't think it would work for the doctors, but very much of it could be used. Hey, the doctors are are clothing themselves in garbage bags right now, Chuck. I mean, you know, it's like anything is better than nothing. When I hear this, it's like this stuff's out there. Now, you had a hood, which had glasses in it. You had a mask, which had the filters in it. You had pants and a jacket and heavy boots and two pair of gloves. This stuff is out there. It just needs to be. I I am guessing, Chuck, that the military is hoarding this stuff because they're expecting that they're going to get hit. The idea of six-foot social distancing in the military is virtually impossible. Yeah. This is going to burn through the military, and it's going to burn through it fast. You've got at least three ships now, U.S. Yeah. Navy ships, where this has been diagnosed mm-hmm. on the ships. When the Mercy and the Comfort pull into port, even mm-hmm. though they're going to be taking non-COVID emergency mm-hmm. cases, mm-hmm. it's going to get aboard those ships. It's going to rip through those ships. Trump yesterday said, I got 10,000 ventilators, but I'm not sending them to anybody because, you know, we may need them. He's basically hoarding stuff for when the red states start to melt down. Then he's going to ride to the rescue in the red states. He's perfectly willing to let the blue states die. I mean, that's really obvious, saying that in New York City they're selling these things out the back door. I mean, what kind of crap is that? When Trump said about, I'm not a supply clerk, the military is the biggest supply organization in the world. They have capabilities to do unbelievable stuff, move stuff all around the countries. I used to keep track. I did that, and I did parts for the C-130. We knew where every single part for every single C-130 was anywhere in the world. We could access that stuff in no time. And for Trump to say that He's not a supply clerk. He's not, but the military is, and they could do this. All he would have to do is let them do it. Between the two different things, this is what I experienced, and this is what I saw, and it's like, it's driving me nuts. It could be done. It could be done if he just wants to do it. Wow.
Because you did work in the supply chain in the military. In the I did it for 19 years. Cassandra in Orchards, Washington. Hey, Cassandra, what's on your mind today? You were talking with the previous person who was talking about the supplies that are being hoarded. I've come up with a term that I like to use that I call fuel capitalism. And to me, this is like one huge, you know, feudalism turned into capitalism. Capitalism, I have a feeling in its purest form, is basically nothing more than feudalism. And Trump is at his peak right now of control so that we are the peons, the peasants, the what have you. And mm. like you said, he's run to the rescue for the red states because those are the peons and the peasants that actually fall for his line of garbage and will do anything right. he says. And not just him. He is only there because Mitch McConnell, because, you know, Pence, because his son-in-law, all of these people, um, all of them are willing to bow to the political power of the corporate entity to give them what mm. they want. They've made them into the feudal lord. Yeah, the oligarchs. And yep. yes. And so we are all there. And I was a history major. So one of the wonderful books that I've been reading lately, Supreme Inequality by Adam Cohen, it shows how in the Nixon era, you know, when the Warren court is gone and Nixon has mm. basically packed the court with all of his lovely Republican you know, our whole system of allowing presidents, first of all, to put people into power in the Supreme Court should be gone. Uh, that's totally political. Even when it was Warren and it was in our favor, it was still it's a political agenda. And this idea that we keep people in for 20, 30 years. And this is what is allowing political entities such as Trump and the Republicans. And I'm sorry, the now fallen Democratic Party to control us and to make us into what we have, I guess, always been, which is peasants that are yeah. at the whim yeah. of the feudal lords. And we dress it up, we call it by different names, but, you know, the pig in the room is still in a tutu and, and makeup, and it's still a pig. Um, and yeah, they it. are what they are, and we are what we are, but we keep telling ourselves. It's like saying that we have a middle class. And I heard a lovely thing the other day that just summed it all up. If you call yourself middle class or, you know, are you poor, are you middle, are you upper? Well, you're poor if you do not have at least three years worth of something. Like right now, we're all housed in our homes. We, you know, I'm paycheck to paycheck. Most people are. If you live paycheck to paycheck, you're poor. If okay. you have about a three-year backup, you're probably middle class. And if you have anything over that, you're of that very, very rare, you know, to 1.5, whatever percent that have money. Right. I think instead of three years, okay. six months is the is the amount that I've actually seen used, you know, for yeah. those kinds of analysis. Okay. Past, but, and and um, I suppose it does depend on which ones, but yeah, I just think that we are still stuck in feudal capitalism and we're trying to call it many different things, but we need to understand that we're being controlled. I agree. I wrote a book called Screwed back in uh, 2005, I think, or eight, something like that. And uh, there's a whole chapter in it about Mark Bloch, the historian who's the world's leading expert on feudalism and how we are now a feudal society. Spot on, Cassandra. Uli in Teaneck, New Jersey. Hey, Uli, what's up? I would like to bring something up, if I may, uh, what Trump said on Fox. Oh, I missed it. What did he say? Okay, I quote. The things they had in there 
were crazy. They had levels of voting that if you ever agreed to it, you would never have a Republican elected in this country again. And he was referring to democratic efforts to include provisions in the stimulus bill to require each state to establish universal vote by mail, early voting, among other measures. Right. And I say, loose lips sink ships. I agree. Trump was speaking the truth. <laughs> and, and it wasn't crazy. I mean, the fact of the matter is that if the majority of Americans actually could vote and did vote, you yeah. would never again have a Republican president. There, there's no doubt about it. And that may well be the case. My concern, as I've said before on this program, is that these guys are going to basically when the election comes, you've got a bunch of states where you can't do mail-in ballots, or it's very difficult to do mail-in ballots, and people are not going to show up at the polls. And so the states are going to report to the uh, president of the Senate when, when the electoral vote comes in that they cannot certify their own electoral votes. This is what happened in the 1876 election between Hayes and Tilden. You had four states that could not certify their votes. Oregon was one of them, Louisiana, Georgia, and there was one other state. The other three were Confederate states. And in each case, it was because they were occupied by the Union Army and the Democrats, the Southern Democrats, you know, the, the former Confederates, were complaining that they were being intimidated by the Army. And the Republican voters were complaining that in all four of these states, including Oregon, the Klan had been riding and during the election and intimidating voters. And so in these four states, they said, we can't be certain that this vote is legitimate. And as a result of that, neither Hayes nor Tilden had the required 50% plus one electoral votes to become president. And as a result of that, it got thrown to the House of Representatives. Now, the story got much more complicated after that, and I won't go through the whole story. But basically, when the House of Representatives votes for president, this is under the 12th Amendment, by the way, when the House of Representatives votes for president, each state has one vote. And that one vote is cast according to how the state legislators, the governors have no say in this, how the state legislators want it to go. Well, you've got 34 states where the Republicans control the state legislatures or have a majority in the state legislatures. In some cases, they have a majority in the House and they don't even control the Senate. But the House and Senate get combined together for that vote. So Trump would be elected 34 to 26 if that was to happen in November. And I think, frankly, that there's a very, very good chance that that's the little trick the Republicans are going to try and pull off. Christine in Boca Raton, Florida. Hey, Christine, what's on your mind today? Tom, are you aware that the United States Department of State.gov website, it states that on February 7th, the United States donated 17.8 tons of PPE, including respirators, to China, including hundreds of millions of dollars from the government and private sector to China. United States Department of state.gov, February 7th, yeah. 2020. I am familiar with that. I mentioned it in the first hour of the program. That was back when Trump was still saying it's a Democratic hoax and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and he was trying to suck up to Chairman Xi or President Xi of China, you know, hoping that Xi would not continue to enforce the tariffs against our farmers and things like that. It was a naked attempt at bribing China. Might have worked. And Trump is not being held to account for it. I think the media has just figured out that this happened in the last 48 hours. It truly is uh, grim, shall we say, for lack of a better word. Christine, thank you. Thanks for bringing that up. It needs to be repeated more frequently. David in Spotswood, New Jersey. Hey, David, what's on your mind today? Thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's up? I wanted to call in and just 
delineate that states and localities aren't like the federal government. They can't issue state bonds ad nauseum. And they can't print money either. Right. You can't print money. And Cuomo said that a state that doesn't even have a, a pension problem, has a conservative balanced budget, is running out of money. Right. And that the federal government isn't giving them enough money to run things. I don't know why the mainstream media isn't pointing this out, but I mean, states like New Jersey and Connecticut have pension liability problems. Buying the bonds isn't enough. They could actually be defaulted. Well, they can't sell bonds right order. now. The bond market has collapsed. The municipal right. bonds are, are totally in the crapper right now. They, they literally can't sell bonds. Right. And I'm saying I don't know why it's not being reported. They could literally run out of money and then have to make hard choices. David, you're spot on, number one. Number two, you've absolutely identified a real crisis. And number three, it's going to get a hell of a lot worse. You know, people are talking about a recession. We are sliding into a depression. And it's going to be a depression that might be worse than the Great Depression of the 1930s, the 1929 through the 1930s, the last Republican Great Depression. It is going to demand a lot of very, very difficult choices. You're absolutely right. Scott in Oakland, California. Hey, Scott, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's up? Hey, Tom, I wanted to get the word out. It seems to be going under the radar, this story about states having guidelines for critical care, who gets it, who Mm -hmm. doesn't. Obviously, the underlying health conditions, high blood pressure, uh, cancer, et cetera, et cetera, diabetes. One, uh, One thing that I read is that people with cognitive disabilities, in other words, mental retardation, Down syndrome, is that an underlying medical condition? I'm, I'm outraged. I was. I don't the, know, uh, but what we're seeing, Scott, I, this is all just a euphemism for rationing medical care. That's what we're at. Right. That's I, where we're I at was, now. Or we're, we're very- I was standing in the exact same spot I was standing when I heard about Sandy Hook. I'm self-employed. I, I was self-employed then. I was not self-employed up until about two weeks ago. Now I'm self-employed again. But in 2012, I was self-employed, and I was standing in the exact same spot when I heard about Sandy Hook, and I literally had the exa- exact same just this incredible i just exploded with tears and i couldn't believe what i was hearing god thanks a lot for the call linda in coconut creek florida hey linda what's up i'm in broward county where it's next to miami-dade and Monroe, and then you know i'm further south and uh, yeah we're in the hotbed of it there's a beach probably 10 minutes away from me that they have shut it all down but he refuses to shut the state down. And my issue with he being Ron governor, DeSantis, the governor. Yes. Is why the heck is he not just locking down this state, say, go home if you have to go home, but nobody enters. We have a cruise ship out there with 133 sick and four dead that they're going to let into Port Everglades, which, you know, I'm not unsympathetic at all. I'm hoping that they they screen them, they put them somewhere and help them with their medical needs. But he's kind of doing nothing. I mean, he's just, oh, you know, fly in if you feel like flying in. I mean, and I'll end with this. The Marvelous Miss Maisel, you have to watch it on Prime. If you and you and Louise want something great to watch, watch that because you'll love it. You'll love everything about that Tell particular about it. show. It's on Prime. She's a comedian who's trying to come up. This is dated back in the 50s, 60s. And women weren't really big on the comedian stage. And she's trying to break through. And she loses her husband. She loses her family, everything. But it's dated in the 50s. And some of the things that are going on in here are hysterical. Are just, you're gonna, you, if you want something really fun to watch, watch The Marvelous Miss Maisel. <laughs> or Killing Eve, which is coming back. M-A-Z-E-L. So one or the other. Um, pardon? 
Okay. I didn't hear you. Okay, it's the marvelous. M-A-Z-E-L. Yeah, marvelous. It's on Prime. It's a Prime. What do you call that uh, series? Watch that, Tom. You're gonna love me. You're gonna thank me for yeah, that. Yeah, an Amazon original. Okay, we'll check it out, Linda. Uh, I suspect Louise is making notes right now. Thank you. Thanks for the call, Linda. It's great to hear from you. It's your media support group for We the People. Paul in Woodenville, Washington. Hey, Paul, what's on your mind today? I want to talk about the coming train wreck, and I'm not talking about just the, the COVID-19 virus, as you've already covered what outbreaks are likely to accelerate. But what Donald Trump has in mind, it's, it's not all that hard to see that he's going to declare this emergency over. And he's going to say, go back to work. It's all over. Everything's fine. He's going to say, Monday, we're going back regardless. And the problem here is this. First of all, Donald Trump, the president, has no authority to tell people of any state to stay at home. None. The Constitution, the First Amendment, guarantees that the governors have the absolute authority to do that. The only time the president has the authority to do that is if there is any state in which the the government, the state government, is in danger of being overthrown. And I read about this when I was reading about the um, the Detroit riots of 1967, when George Romney, Governor Romney, wanted President Johnson to bring federal troops in, and Johnson said, "I can't do it. I can't do. It. I can loan you some National Guard troops from another state. You're not in danger of being overthrown." I but Eisenhower did that. Troops. Eisenhower did that. that. He, he he escorted yeah. for black students who wanted to go to college. At Central High School, yeah, I understand that. I understand that. Or high school, yeah. but that was that was upholding that was upholding that was upholding a Supreme Court decision. Right. So he's upholding the law and the state. He was upholding federal law, and the state was trying to get away in the way of that. That's what. That's what that was. The difference was, I would say. But the fact is, the right. governors, the crisis is not going to be over. So the governors, they may still have restrictions in place. And so what he's going to do is he's going to say the governors are standing in the way. They're crippling the economy and they're standing in the way. And he's going to be talking. Uh, he's going to play the Ronald Reagan optimism card and make the and, and you have to admit that most of the states, California, Washington, New York, these are the, the productive, the production states, which are responsible for the economy. He's going to argue that these are blue states and he's going to argue they're getting in the way of the recovering economy. And people, yeah. the thing is, the two, is the two things the, that might blow that up, Paul, are Florida and Louisiana. We'll see, but they seem to be in a different world. But what I'm saying is that because it wasn't argued, nobody argued when Trump gave his recommendation to stay at home. That was a recommendation. Nobody argued with sure. that and saying you don't have the authority because everybody wanted that to be the case. But he didn't have the authority the governors have the absolute authority to make that decision, as many governors have. And so nobody got into the nitpicky argument of saying, and so, of saying that he didn't have the authority. But now that he's going to say, I'm lifting it, well, he doesn't have the authority to do either one. So he's going to make the governors of these states look like the bad guys and, and gals and try to make it. And there are, you know, there are some of these states that, where there are you know, pivotal, pivotal elections going on uh, in November have this resurrection of the economy, free market, capitalism, and free enterprise. So this is all fluff. This is what I call it. I told you before, it's the cotton candy economy. It's not based on earnings, mm-hmm. and it never was. It never was. It was always propped up 
by uh, Trump's monetary policy, his tax cuts and his uh, low interest rates and just give it. I mean, to argue that this is an economy is B.S. And I've always said that this stock market is not the economy. And when you look at the actual growth, Trump has had under his watch one quarter of three point one percent growth. One quarter. All the rest of it has been under three point one percent, averaging about two point five percent. And remember, the malaise years of Jimmy Carter, he averaged three point one percent for four years. So he can't really crow about his great no, economic he can't. growth but, but, here. But he- and I agree with your assessment that he's going to start attacking governors. He's already started attacking Cuomo. Cuomo is walking this very, very fine line. We'll see, though. I think Florida melting down and Ron DeSantis freaking out, which is going to happen in a week or so, is going to change the entire equation. But I could be wrong. We'll see. Paul, thanks for the call. Michael in Orlando, Florida. Hey, Michael, you are in the bullseye. What's up? How are you doing there? Uh, I, yeah, I live in Orlando near the convention center off International Drive. And on Channel 13, mm-hmm. Spectrum News, the lady said that the most testing they could do in one day is 250, period. Right. That's a federal mandate. That doesn't sound right to me, because if there's 251 and 252... It's, yeah, it's not a federal mandate. It's probably how many testing kits they have. Those are CDC test kits. But, you know, that that would mean that they're not using the ones from the private labs or the ones from the private labs are not available in Florida. We need to get a little more information on that, Michael. But uh, I wish you the very best. Please stay very, very safe. You are in a danger zone. And uh, be be careful. Yeah, good. Be good to your whoever you're confined with, as it were. And and stay safe. Michael, thank you for the call. Tony in Las Lunas, New Mexico. Hey, Tony, what's up? got a timeline here on how all this took place from the start. December the 10th was when, um, and excuse me if I butcher some of these names, Wu Guixian was one of the earliest known coronavirus patients to start feeling ill in China. Uh, on December the 27th, the Wuhan health officials are told that a new coronavirus is causing the illness. On December 30th, A. Fan, which was a top director at the Wuhan Central Hospital, posted on WeChat about the virus. She was reprimanded for doing so and told not to spread the information about it. January the 1st, Wuhan Public Security Bureau brings in for questioning eight doctors who had posted about the illness on WeChat. Right. Um, no, Tony, and, I, you know, on, we, we, I think we all pretty much know the timeline. What's the point you're trying to make? Okay. And well, the point is, is and, and to get up to a little bit, on January the 14th, the World Health Organization stated that there was no evidence of human-to-human transmission. Okay. And it wasn't until January the 20th that the Chinese actually announced that the virus could be passed between people. I, on January I don't know that 31st, that's the case, Tony. I'm, I, I'm sorry, Tony. I, I, you know, I, I, your, your timeline is great. You know, keep it up. Um, I've seen timelines over on, you know, right-wing websites that try to make it look like Donald Trump couldn't have known. Nobody knew. And I've seen, you know, timelines on scientific websites that suggest that basically China knew in possibly even in November that they had this problem. And, you know, by December it became a real mess. And that our spies were telling Trump in December and January that this was coming. I mean, that's You're the listening times. to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archive. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. 
There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Jackie in Grass Valley, California. Hey, Jackie. I am grieving for everyone that is suffering and losing people to the COVID-19 Yeah, almost almost 3,000 families now, or over 3,000 families have been wiped out by having a family member die at at Donald Trump's hands. Yeah, I mean, this is what's amazing, uh, Jackie, is that the Boston Globe this morning said in their editorial that Trump has blood on his hands. This is a relatively conservative newspaper. I, you know, I get it. It's a Democratic newspaper, but it's a but yes, he does. He does have the blood of these 3000 people on his hands. If he had acted in January when he was told to act for that matter, back in December, if he had started planning when he was told to start planning, we would not have 3,000 dead people and we wouldn't be heading toward a couple hundred thousand. Absolutely. Uh, you, Absolutely. I am so with you on that. Grieves me desperately that yeah. we are suffering so badly. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Thank you for that, Jackie. I'm grieving for those people as well and for our healthcare workers and their families. In many cases, they can't go home to their families. In fact, in all cases, they probably shouldn't go home to their families. And we should be providing, we should be taking over hotels all around the major hospitals and providing, you know, food and housing to the healthcare workers. Pete Hello? in Seattle, what's on your mind today, Pete? I have been wondering for quite a while as this pandemic has been developing from everything that we know about it from science it seems to me that the first thing that everybody should be doing is wearing masks something to cover their mouths and noses especially you know food workers and other service providers there was a really good article in you know i'm i'm a member of the aaas the american association for the advancement of science and they publish a magazine every week called science and there was a really good article, I don't know if it was on their blog or in their, in their magazine's website that I read a couple days ago, saying that the way that the Chinese have done this, the, the people who need to wear masks, who need to wear masks, are the people who are contagious. Because just literally just being in the same breathing area with somebody who's contagious, you can acquire it. You don't even have to talk to them. You just have to stand near them. But the problem is that unlike the cold and flu, where you're not contagious until you have symptoms, with this virus, this coronavirus, you're contagious the day after you're infected, whether you have symptoms right. or not. And so yeah. the goal is to get everybody to wear a mask on the hopes that the 10% of people who are infected or 1% will be thus stopped. But if right. you say to the population, if you think you're sick, wear a mask, or if you're worried about getting sick, wear a mask, what that does is it causes the mask to be a sign of so- a focus of social stigma. And people will be reluctant to wear the mask because they don't want to be, you know, basically stigmatized. They don't want to say, yes, I'm, I'm carrying the plague. And so what China did was they said, if you go out of your house, you must wear a mask. If you're in any public right. place, you must wear a mask, whether you're sick or not, whether you're old or young, everybody. This is the law now. And China's doing this. Makes South sense. Korea's doing this. I believe Japan and Taiwan are doing it. And what that does is, you know, it's, it's sort of like the locking down in place. It, it catches the people who would otherwise be contagious. Am I singing right. this tune here, Pete? You are totally. It's like so logical, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, and then it yeah. and removes that, that stigma if it's there for somebody. Yeah. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And this is what we need to do. Pete, thank you for that. That was a great, uh, great question or comment. Steve from Topanga, California. Hey, Steve, what's up? Trump, I don't know why he could deny him calling himself a socialist. But <laughs> Steve, you know, I don't I think, think there's a single company in there that is being taken over by the federal government. Yeah, what I'm, you know, what I'm saying is, is a la Venezuela or the Soviet Union. Oh, that no, not the like that. But I mean, it, take it, over the companies. No, I'm not talking about it like that. I'm talking about it in the sense that he's being forced to do things under more of a socialist oh, yeah. brand. Yeah, and, yeah uh, absolutely. Which I think is, is good. And it just shows that, you know, it's a good thing. Yeah, thank you, Steve. Spot on. I'm, I'm sorry I misinterpreted what you were saying. This is causing everybody in America, I think, or at least it's causing a conversation about what are the appropriate roles of government. Should government be here for us when we fall? Should they catch us when we fall? I mean, that's what the social safety net's all about. And he pointed it out brilliantly in that call. We'll be right back. And welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. James in Spokane, Washington. Hey, James, what's up? Hi, Tom. I listen to you all the time, as you know. Um, I'm preaching to the choir when I tell you I'm a firm believer in the power of positive thinking. And the GOP... They're nothing but spoilers. They're, they're, they're so negative. It's going to hit them much harder. You know, you need power, uh, mm-hmm. positive thinking in order to repel it and to get better from it. And they're nothing but negativity, Tom. It's, you know, we're going to have yeah. to suffer for this, but this is the only way we're going to take out Trump at this point. The system is too corrupt. And, and not just Trump. The, the whole, yeah, this, this whole right-wing idea that you're on your own, buddy, is the best way to run a government. And that is being proven in real time right in front of us. Or the idea that, you know, if you're going to have a healthcare system, you really have to have a bunch of crony capitalists in there running it for you so that they can take billions of dollars of your, of your healthcare dollars. I think it's going to blow up all of these ideas. And we're, and we're going to see that the stuff that the progressives have been talking about for a long, long time is absolutely spot on. James, thank you. Spot on. Dave in Montpelier, Vermont. Hey, Dave, what's up? Hey, Tom. Um, you know, as I watch this whole coronavirus uh, issue play out and people on TV describe their symptoms. Friends and I are talking amongst ourselves saying, you know, I may have had that because those symptoms describe an illness. And in my case, I have underlying conditions. So I went to the doctor, I believe, January 21st, same day, first case was detected, turned up negative for flu, conventional flu. But I felt like crap. I couldn't breathe. So I'm just wondering, is there a suggestion that this may have been circulating long before we knew, or? And any city that has a, a, an airport in it is probably going to be at more risk than cities that don't, because, I mean, I used to live in Montpelier, and I would fly, and I used right. to fly to Asia and whatnot when I lived in Montpelier, and people will, you know, and you yeah, just, I mean, I'm just change planes in a hub. Very- but I think, Dave, the bottom line, and, th- and thank you for the call, it's a good question. I think the bottom line is that, yeah, in all, almost certainly this had been circulating in the United States probably before our first patient because uh, in Washington state, uh, I believe, which on January 20th, because, uh, you know, it certainly was in the United States for at least a week or two before that and probably longer than that. So, you know, I, we'll find out eventually. What we need is a serological test, the uh, test for antibodies in the bloodstream that will tell us if you have been previously infected. That's going to be the, the key to a lot of stuff. Bruce in Clinton, Iowa. Hey, Bruce, what's on your mind? Hey, I've heard a number of people talk about MASH units, uh, facilities for uh, for people with uh, coronavirus. But what I've wondered is, you know, we've got a number of, of closed rural hospitals. We have closed 
uh, nursing homes. Uh, some of the rural and small town hospitals are, are struggling, even in part because of the virus. But I have not heard anybody really talking about, is there some plan for getting those hospitals and nursing homes, getting those back open, getting those staff, and getting them ready to take care of patients? Uh, what is, what is, is the problem with this? All I can do is guess, Bruce, based on what I've been reading. I just finished writing a book about Monopoly, which, in fact, I got the page proofs mm -hmm. back today. And in, in writing that book, what I discovered was that there was this large hospital, large for-profit hospital chain that had been taken over by a hedge fund or by a, by a venture cap, vulture capital company, one of Mitt Romney's kind of companies. They had bought up a bunch of the local regional hospitals and then they had the big city hospital and they closed all the regional hospitals that fed the big city hospital to force people to go to the big city hospital because it was it operated more profitably than the regional ones did. But they didn't actually close, close them. What they did was they closed them, but they kept two or three people on staff to, quote, keep them open, even though they weren't seeing any patients, to legally keep them open for 12 months and one day. Because if a hospital has been has ceased to operate and they did this for a year and a day so that they could so that the local communities could not buy these hospitals back and reboot them. Because if the hospital has not seen patients in a year and a day, then they have to go through the federal recertification process from ground zero. They have to start at zero and certify every piece of equipment in the hospital is a process that typically takes up to a year. And they did this so that local communities couldn't turn the hospitals back on. They couldn't take them over. So after a year and a day, then they would sell the hospitals. And of course, nobody wanted to buy them. So they're just you know, going fallow. So that may be the problem that they're facing, that Cuomo is facing. I mean, he was talking about motels and hotels and, and college dorms and things like this. There's a half a million hospital beds in the United States that we used to have in 1980 and we no longer have, you know, one third of our total hospital bed capacity. And uh, to what extent they may be revivable, I just don't know. I, I think, though, that these guys who got rid of these hospital beds did it in a way that would make it really hard to bring them back. Bruce, thanks for the call. Lisa in Niles, Ohio. I worked as a nurse for 17 years. Bottom line, when are we going to believe the science and the medical experts? I really think society is yeah. coming to an inflection point. You and I know what's going to happen in Florida. That's going to be horrific. But the science... Yes foretells it right how can we yeah. how can humans deny it after that happens i don't even believe what trump says anymore we know he's delusional listen to the yeah. science that's all i have to say yeah thank you well you said it very well he said spot on i mean this is the thing listen to the governors and some of them are in for a rude awakening you got republican governors in mississippi and florida who basically chose to do nothing and allow Mardi Gras and spring break to roll on to make a few extra bucks, you know, before we have to shut down. And now you're going to see they're going to run out of morgue capacity in three or four weeks. It's that bad. So anyway, share it with your friends. Keep yourself safe. Keep your friends safe. Be good to other people. Reach out to friends, family and neighbors. You know, this is what electronic communication is all about. Use your telephone, use FaceTime, use Skype, whatever you can. Get out there, get active. Technically speaking, tag your in. We'll see you tomorrow. Same time, same place. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.